Beloved, please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and this morning we'll be looking at verse 18 as we begin this new uh, wonderful section of Romans uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 18 being a kind of summary statement or thesis for all that will come after uh, through verse 38, or th- verse 39 rather, uh, in the chapter. Well, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, his uh, holy, inerrant, uh, authoritative, inspired, efficacious word. Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we thank you for your word. It is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, piercing down to the marrow, uh, to the very depths of our soul. We pray that you would do your heart work in us, that we would cling to nothing else but Christ today. And for those, Lord, who have never clinged to Christ, who have never repented of their sins and received Christ as their Lord and Savior, we pray that even today, the day would be a day of salvation for them even as it is for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In order for us to truly understand Paul's letter to the Romans, especially as it concerns uh, the fundamental themes of suffering and glory, it's important for us to remember its first century context. It was hard to be a Christian in first century Rome. And that's putting it lightly. These dear believers lived in a culture that was profoundly hostile to the gospel. Because Christians did not engage in Caesar worship or give homage to the panoply of Greco-Roman idols found in every public square and temple and living room, Christians were viewed as irreligious and scorned as unfaithful and disloyal Roman citizens, if they were citizens at all. You see, most believed that Caesar worship and the worship of the Greek gods were the glue that held the Roman Empire together. The worship of the gods and the festivals related to them were a foundational part of Roman society and civic life. Thus, many viewed... Many viewed Christians as unpatriotic and even seditious. First century graffiti in Rome reveals that some viewed Christians as cannibals due to their practice of the Lord's Supper. They were ridiculed for their commitment to biblical sexuality and marriage between one man and one woman. Christians were also mocked for their belief that salvation comes through faith in one who was crucified on a cross between two thieves. How could someone who was crucified on a shameful cross, on an instrument of Roman execution, be the Savior and Lord of the world, they thought? Kings conquer their enemies and sit on victorious thrones. They don't get nailed to Roman crosses. One historian of antiquity explains it this way, quote, 
This conviction that a crucified criminal might somehow be a part of the identity of the one God of Israel, a conviction that Paul, in all his correspondence, took absolutely for granted, was shocking to Galatians as well as to Jews. In other words, this part of the Roman Empire in Galatia. Command and swagger were the very essence of the cult of the Caesars. To rule as an emperor was to rule as a victorious general. In every town in Galatia, in every square, states of statues of Caesar served as a reminder to his subjects that to rank as the son of a god was, by definition, to embody earthly greatness. No wonder, then, that Paul, proclaiming to the Galatians that there was only the the one son of God and that he suffered the death of a slave, not struggling against it, but submitting willingly to the lash, should have described the cross as a scandal, end quote. Dear ones, this was the historical context for the first century Christian church. And this gospel message was scandalous. Discipleship was anything but easy. No, it was costly. No one knew this better than Ignatius of Antioch. Perhaps you have heard of him. Ignatius of Antioch was a first-century church leader who lived uh, approximately 30 A.D. to 100 A.D. That means that around 60 A.D., he would have been about 30 years old. That's when the book of Romans was written. He was right in this part of history. He was mentored by the Apostle John. And Ignatius is said to have been commissioned or ordained by the Apostle Peter into his position of leadership in the early church. Well, at about age 70, the Roman authorities had had enough of his preaching, and so they condemned him to death at age 70. And so he was led from his church in Antioch to Rome by a group of soldiers. And on his journey to Rome, he wrote seven letters. And in them, he encouraged Christians to stand firm in the face of suffering and persecution. As an old man, Ignatius was being led to the Colosseum to be torn apart by lions in front of raucous crowds. But did he cower in fear? No, by God's grace, he entrusted his life to the Lord. And he wrote the following, quote, Come fire and cross and grapplings with wild beasts, the rending of my bones and body. Only let it be mine to attain Jesus Christ. Ignatius of Antioch. You can read his story in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. As you know, uh, in days of persecution in the 16th century under Mary Tudor, John Fox wrote this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, in order to encourage the Christians who were under persecution. Of course, the suffering of believers in Rome ebbed and flowed over the first two centuries, and it was especially bad under Nero and after him. But the point here is that Paul was not writing and ministering in a vacuum. That's what makes so much modern preaching and teaching and writing uh, so ridiculous as it concerns uh, books like Romans, because they're not looking at the context and recognizing that uh, that, that, that Paul was not writing uh, from a, a therapeutic kind of focus or a health and wealth gospel focus. 
He was writing to a suffering church and giving them hope, not in themselves, not in the world, but in the gospel. This is the historical context. And while our own 21st century cultural and political context hasn't reached in any way this level of hostility against Christianity, we would be fools not to notice that antagonism is growing at an alarming pace. Antagonism towards the church, towards Christians, towards what we believe is growing. Many in the media these days are now speaking openly about their disdain for Christians and for Christianity, especially in relation to biblical views of marriage, children, gender, education, and the sanctity of life. Dear ones, things are changing fast. Our culture is throwing off its Christian moorings for something akin to the kind of aggressive paganism of first century Rome. Thus, as we read the book of Romans, more and more we recognize how it applies. Dear ones, it's for all of these reasons and more that God's word in Romans 8, 18 and following is so comforting and encouraging to us. It's a word of sure hope in a world full of suffering. It's a word of undaunted love in a world filled with unforgiveness and hate. It's a word fixed. It's a word of fixed purpose, divine purpose, in a world that seems to be in chaos. And it's a word of unshakable redemption in a world riddled with hopelessness and despair. And so Romans 8.18 and all that follows is a gospel word. It's, a, it's glorious good news amidst all the bad news. Have you seen all the bad news? I was speaking with someone about that this morning. You get on any news site now, it's like the first 20 articles are just awful. You may have seen one or two like that in years past, kind of mingled in with other things that were sort of less crazy or maybe even some good news once in a while. But now it's just everything is bad news and it's it's, it's, it's crazy news as well. It's like we have lost our, our minds and our common sense uh, and our moral foundations in this, in this country. But here we have good news amidst all the bad news. There's this cacophony of, of, of crazy music that's playing all around us all the time, but then you, you listen off in the distance and you can hear this beautiful song. You can hear it. You can hear the beautiful song if you listen closely. And that's, that's the gospel. It's the good news in the midst of all of the bad news. Look at verse 18 with me again. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. And so there are two uh, points uh, in my outline. First of all, the sufferings of this present time. Secondly, the incomparable weight of future glory. The sufferings of this present time and the incomparable weight of future glory. First of all, the sufferings of this present time. You'll remember uh, from two weeks ago that Paul ended the previous section on spiritual adoption by giving a condition 
of sonship or for sonship. Look with me at verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we, what? Suffer with him in order that we may be, what? Glorified with him. There's that suffering and glory language used in the previous verse. And it's used all over the New Testament. I'm hoping that even after today, you will see your Bibles in a different light because always Paul is talking about the suffering and the glory. The suffering and the glory. He's realistic about what we go through as Christians in this life and in our culture. And he's also pointing us forward to the hope of glory. As I explained last time, God's redeemed children are not immune from the sufferings of this life, especially as it concerns the real challenges associated with being a sincere follower of Christ in a hostile world. The Apostle Peter, writing also to suffering first century believers, he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, the following, quote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad, now listen, when His glory is revealed. Colossians 3, keep your eyes on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And when He appears, you will appear with Him in glory. Over and over again, we see this refrain. Suffering comes before glory. C.S. Lewis said, It's not, what scares me is not that I will suffer in some ways in this life. I know I will. It's how much. That's what sometimes can get us. To be in union with Christ means that we follow our Lord Jesus' pattern of suffering to glory. Now listen, Christ is our head. We are his body. We are the body of Christ. And the church is in union with him. And so the church, when it suffers, suffers with Jesus in this mysterious way because of the solidarity we have with him. Again, verse 17 in our text states that we suffer with him and not apart from him. Remember what Paul said to Saul on the Damascus road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, why are you persecuting me? Dear believer, take comfort in this, that when you go through difficult times, when you go through challenging situations, when you're being persecuted for being a Christian, Christ suffers with you. You are suffering with him. There's that solidarity. It's a comfort to know when we go through difficult trials that Christ, our high priest, our elder brother, our faithful friend is with us. He sympathizes with us, that he prays for us. Dear ones, being a Christian does not issue an escape from the suffering of this evil age. Indeed, in most cases, being a Christian intensifies it in some way. This would have been true for believers in Rome and across the Roman Empire in the first three centuries of the church. It's true for most believers around the world today. Christians go against the grain of the culture. Christians swim against the tide. Christians say no 
to the idolatries of the culture. Christians live by the fixed truth of Scripture and not by the ever-changing orthodoxies of the world. And so what this means is that those who seek to live lives of faith will suffer in some way. Consequently, there is a kind of dissonance between Christians and the world which often brings this kind of suffering. For Ignatius of Antioch, it was a martyr's death. For us, right now, at this juncture in history, it might be ostracism from friends at school or at work. It may be limited job prospects or promotions. It may be exclusion from certain opportunities on athletic teams or faculty positions. It may mean soft persecution through mockery or scorn. We're seeing this all over the place in our culture. And this is what may come. Of course, in many other parts of the world, persecution is much worse. It can be physical and even deadly. This is true in places like China and India, North Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. So Paul, in verse 18, exhorts his redeemed children, notice there, to consider the sufferings of this present time. What is this present time? It's what Paul elsewhere calls this present evil age. It's, it's the age between the two comings of Christ. It's that epoch between the first coming of Christ where he lived a perfect life and died an atoning death and was raised from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven and the time between that and when he will return and make all things new. And this time is, a, is brief compared to the infinite years of eternity. Do you ever think about, do you ever stop to think about how brief this life is in comparison to eternity? I think probably those of us with gray hair do that more than those that do not. Because when one is young, there's a sense that I've just got my whole life ahead of me and there's just all these years ahead. But when you get older... And you look in the mirror and say, who is that person staring back at me? Who's that old person staring back at me in the mirror? You start thinking, you know, it seemed like yesterday that I was doing this or that, and it may have been 35 or 40 years ago. Life is short, and our prayer should be the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 39, 4 through 6. Listen to what the psalmist says. Oh, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, he writes. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather? Paul wants Christ's followers to have a theologically sound view of suffering and of time. Why? So that we don't view suffering as separate from Christ or as separating us from Christ. Who will separate us from the love of God? No one. Nothing. So we don't view suffering as separate from Christ or separating us from Christ or as lasting forever, but as that which marks our true sonship and prepares us for future 
glory. Suffering actually marks our sonship when it's suffering related to our being committed Christians. It marks our sonship. And it also is used by God to prepare us for glory. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Just turn back a couple pages. Listen to what Paul says on this subject in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our, what? Sufferings. Knowing, knowing, confident that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God, in his wisdom, ordains suffering so that we would be fashioned more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. The remaining sin that indwells in us is powerful, and we are called to mortify it and to put it to death. God serves us in the trials that we go through to assist with that process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the indwelling sin that still remains. It's what humbles us reminds us that we are but dust. It reminds us that our life is short and eternity is long. The sufferings are brief compared to the weight of glory that is before us, the incomparable weight of future glory. Look with me at verse 18 again, the incomparable weight of future glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or or in us, as some translations will say. Paul here is making a comparison. He's making a comparison between the suffering of this present age with the eternal weight of glory. It's what John Murray calls the great disproportion. The great disproportion, that is the disproportion of the suffering that Christians endure in this life with the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us in the next. You'll remember the terrible events surrounding the murder of the Emmanuel Nine back in 2015. The day after these murders took place, I went downtown with a friend to pray and to sing with the thousands who had gathered in front of the church. And some of you were probably there as well. Calhoun Street uh, was blocked off and there were people everywhere. 
It was amazing to hear the singing, the expressions of Christian joy, love, and hope in the face of such brutality and suffering. As I was there for a couple of hours, I, it dawned upon me that nobody had read Scripture. Nobody had spoken from God's Word. And while the singing was amazing and the prayers were wonderful, I thought, we need to have the Word. For it's in the Word that God speaks to us. And I was led to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 and following a text which we've already seen fosters everlasting hope in the midst of earthly pain. And what stands out in this final section of Romans 8, and if I could say this even before, I want to say this, and how extraordinary to see the families of the victims offering grace and forgiveness uh, to the perpetrator. It was a sign of such love and kindness. At the time, uh, uh, it was a terrible, miserable situation, but we see the Spirit of God working uh, and Christ working in and through this, this tragedy. What stands out in the final section of Romans 8 are the three groanings. And I want to just touch upon these uh, today. I want to touch upon these today, uh, and we'll, of course, explore them in depth in, in future weeks. Uh, but we have three groanings in Romans 8 19 and following. We have the groanings of creation. We have the groanings of God's redeemed children. And we have the groanings of the Holy Spirit. The three groanings. The three groanings. Uh, uh, groaning, the groaning of creation. Look there with me at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In the Old Testament, we have uh, trees clapping them, their hands and mountains giving praise to God. And there's this kind of personification of nature in its praise. And, and here we know that, that nature at the fall was cursed by God. It was subjected by God to futility. That's why we have hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and all these so-called natural disasters. And creation itself, the Bible says, is, is groaning for the consummation for the return of Christ. We also have the groaning of God's children. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the fullness and the completeness of our Adoption as sons of God and inheritors of all of the blessings of our salvation. And then we have the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. A mysterious verse. We're going to look at it more later. But the groanings of creation, the groanings of believers, the groanings of the Spirit. Do you see that this world is not our home? This is not it. 
And whatever the news says to you, whatever the lies that are being perpetrated through your screens to tell you that, that this is it, the here and now, you know that that is not true. And so you do not despair. You're not discouraged. For the Christian believer, amidst all of the suffering and pain and anxious circumstances of life, there is an eternal weight of glory in view. And it's just around the corner. It truly is just around the corner. You say, well, pastor, what if I live for another 40 years um, compared to eternity? What is that? Imagine after 10,000 years in heaven, you're sitting around, we're all sitting around together. Hey, let's have a Christ church reunion. And we're talking about that sermon that was preached in 2023, in March, on how small time is. And, and, and we start chuckling to ourselves in glory after 10,000 years because we know that after another 10,000 years, it's going to still be like nothing. And we say, and we thought like 40 years was a lot. Oh, how ridiculous we were. Why didn't we believe God's word more? Why didn't we trust in his promises more? I think is perhaps what we'll be asking. You see, it is just around the corner, this glory, just over the ridge of this brief life on earth is the glory. It is the glory. What is the glory? It's the presence of God and of his angels and of his redeemed saints. The glory is the fullness of the salvation which we will enjoy at the consummation, at the perusia, at the return of Christ. We deeply long for it. We we groan for it, and we are exhorted by God to contemplate it often so that we do not look to the world to give us the comfort that only God can give or to give us the truth that only Christ can give to us. There's a reason why there's so much depression and suicide. It's because people are looking for answers from the world And the answers they are getting are not leading them to the truth. It's leading them to lies and despair. But, oh, Christ says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are depressed, all you who are struggling and groaning. Come to me and I will give you rest. Last summer I was with Hans in... Oxford, England, and we visited uh, many churches, one of which was the beautiful St. Mary's Church, uh, and it's also called University Church. Many notable sermons have been preached in that pulpit. I mentioned a few weeks ago, earlier in Romans 8, that uh, John Owen preached his uh, mortification of sin sermons to Oxford students from that pulpit, and also C.S. Lewis preached his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, on June 8th, 1942. What was going on in 1942? It was the height of World War II. And C.S. Lewis preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. You can read it online. It's there. 
for you to read, but in one section of it, he says this, for if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, that we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, as false as history, excuse me, so false as history, may be very near the truth. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, Lewis says, we shall get in. You see, there's going to be a great kind of inversion that takes place at the resurrection, when all that God has been doing inside of us by His Spirit will suddenly be visible and will be made perfect. And we will dwell with God in the glory forever. Dear ones, if you are a redeemed child of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then a weight of an eternal glory is just over the horizon. And the sufferings of this brief life are not even worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So as we conclude this morning, let me ask you a question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him by grace through faith, the one who suffered and died on the cross for you to pay for your sins? Have you repented of your sins and received Christ as your Lord and Savior? You, you may have grown up in the church. You may be a member of a church somewhere. You may be in church for the first time in months or years. The question is for you. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is there and he is not silent. He is speaking through his word and his salvation is true. In him, you will find grace and forgiveness and eternal life as you turn from your sin and bow before his exalted throne. The world wants you to bow before all kinds of things. We actually see politicians and movie stars bowing before people. We bow before Christ by his grace, and we invite you to do the same. God loves you and calls you to believe on his son. Again, Christ lived a sinless life. We, we do not. We live lives that have lots of sin. 
We do not conform to God's law as we ought. Christ conformed to God's law perfectly for us. And then as a perfect, righteous law keeper, as a lamb of God, spotless and sinless, he laid his life down on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for your sins and mine. And he died. The wages of sin is death. He died. He, he bore the wrath of God in our stead. And he took on himself the sufferings of hell so that we could enter the glory of heaven. Let us remember, dear ones, that the suffering of this world, whatever suffering it is, no matter how awful the suffering, it is nothing compared to the suffering in eternity of those who are separate from Christ, to the hopeless and eternal suffering of hell. Christ went through hell on the cross to pay the debt of our sins. Let us believe on him and be saved. The second thing I want to mention by way of application is, dear ones, keep your eyes on Christ amidst the sufferings and myriad distractions of this present evil age. We will miss the glimpses of glory if we give our primary attention to this world or focus primarily on our hard circumstances. God gives us little glimpses of the glory. But we will miss them if we are caught up in the affairs of this world. Robert Mounts writes this, quote, If we allow the difficulties of life to absorb our attention, they will effectively blot out the glory that awaits us. Our focus needs to be on things above, Colossians 3, 2, spiritual concerns of eternal significance. Beloved Christ Church, there will be many troubles in this world as there were for our Lord Jesus and the apostles and millions of Christians over the course of history. But we have gospel hope. You have gospel hope. And nobody and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Him there is hope. Not a hope-so hope, but a sure and everlasting hope. It's not a hope like, I hope my team wins so my bracket doesn't get more messed up than it already is. It is a sure hope because Christ himself lived, died, and rose again, and we, by grace, are united to him, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, mysteriously and yet really, and we know that he is there, and he suffers with us, and he has solidarity with us, and we are united to him, and we can never be separated from him. That's the message of Romans 8. And that which we get a glimpse of now through the means of grace and the fellowship of the church, we will know in full glory in the presence of our God. So take heart. Do not lose heart. Keep going. Persevere. Do not let the sufferings of this world crush you. Put your hope in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Love your neighbor. Be kind. Confess your sin. Abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is reason for hope. Take heart. Abide in the Lord and keep your eyes of faith on Him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the eternal hope that is ours in Christ. We thank you that in Him we died and in Him we've been raised and one day we shall be resurrected 
physically. We will dwell in the glory, a glory which has so much weight and time and significance and meaning and beauty and splendor and joy that it's not worth even comparing to the sufferings we endure in this life in terms of magnitude and weightiness. So, Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the privilege we have to love and to serve one another as those who have been loved and served by your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.